Hello, you're listening to Consuming Culture. I'm Kat McShane, I'm a journalist and filmmaker, and this podcast is all about how and why culture gets made, told through the eyes of the people who make it. Sounds simple, right? Well, I'm hoping this series gives some unique insights into what it means to be an artist when the big issues of the day, like wealth inequality, advances in technology and people-powered social movements, are fundamentally altering the way culture is made, consumed and valued. This episode features an interview with the artist Liz Rosenfeld. One, two, three, four, five. <laughs> I am really annoyed now. Okay. So I'm here with Liz Rosenfeld, a Berlin-based artist working across diverse mediums, including film and live performance. She's in London this week showing new work that sees her addressing ecological crisis through performance. Welcome, Liz. Thank you. Can you tell me what the show is about? Yes. um, The show is called I Live in a House with a Door. And it is... um, it's actually coming from a, a performance that I made a few years ago, which was directly addressing the question of um, what happens in the face of ecological destruction when all we're left with is our own bodies as these sources for energy. So it was a more kind of science fiction-y approach to the question of um, what do we, how do we like sustainably exist in our bodies? Um and it was also about kind of the concept of burnout and and ener- the way that we distribute energy from ourselves. So I, I took elements of that piece and I sort of focused it more on the, um, I would even say like the consumption of desire in different ways and the potentiality of, for me personally, what it means to just have my body as the material that I'm working with. Um, and thinking about the materiality of my flesh as its own kind of autonomous um, material and how it moves in its own time, how um, being in a you know larger body is um, a kind of non-binary existence in itself beyond gender identification um, and how that informs the way that I move um, time and space with an audience. The idea of working with your uh, own flesh, how did that come about? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, that that came from, I guess it's like deeply rooted in my experience of working in uh, certain contemporary dance contexts over the years where I've been invited into the work of other people. Uh, specifically choreographers and dancers who have like a very specific training in their body and history in their body of a contemporary dance discourse and, and, um, and visceral experience. And I was really interested in why, um, as, as somebody who mostly comes from kind of like this history of experimental performance art and film, which I link the two very much together in both of my practices, Um, And approach both as starting with the body, actually, like approaching film as a body and approaching performance with my body. 
certainly my work has my own work through my experience of working in dance contexts as a performer has taken on a more physicality, like a more, I'd say intense physicality in terms of like pushing my own limits. Um, but then specifically, I would say I push the limits of my desire in, in this is what through, through one, this like dance or dance practice or movement practice is one strain of how I push my, my limits of desire through my body. Because it seems to me that desire is something that runs through your work mm -hmm. from very, very earliest pieces of work yeah. that you've made. Um, like 20 years. Yeah. 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 When was the last time you heard your piece of work, um, Hearts? So funnily enough, that video, <clears throat> which was one of the first pieces I ever made, one of the first videos I ever made in art school, is also my first work about like explicitly about sexuality, explicitly about queer sexuality. And also like it was me just kind of exploring what I was kind of in a way like coming out not as a queer person, but coming out as a queer body which was a very different, which is like a very, very strict differentiation or not strict, but a very specific differentiation for me in that I actually was starting to explore practices that were informing how I wanted to live or how I wanted to evolve as a queer body and as in relationship to my identity. Let me just play some of it. Oh god! <laughs> oh no! I don't want to hear my voice. Oh my god! Oh, no, do you know who? Yeah, uh, I have to play it to you. I thought it was. It reminded me. Um, that, it was like a queer like uh, a... Lena Dunham. Oh god! <laughs> Please edit that out. Please edit that out. It's two thousand and three, so you pre you you are pre I her. I can't stand her. <laughs> Where are you? Oh, God, cat! why are you making me do this? <laughs> Sometimes when I'm cruising boys on the street or on the subway, I secretly pretend I'm in a bathhouse. I'm wandering through steamy rooms, guys fucking in dark corners, hands coming at me, straining out of some kind of dark nowhere of place, reaching for my <laughs> towel. Looking for my hard dick. There you go, okay. Oh, let's, God. Let's, let's can't listen to any more of it. <laughs> it just, it's like hearing your voice, like your young voice is so funny. I think hearing your own voice is so funny anyway. But what I find so fascinating is that like, so this video kind of in like the last three years has been shown a lot. And uh, people are like, they're particularly gay men love it and which is a very different conversation with gay men than I was having when I made it what was it at that point that drew you to the world of cruising mm. um well what drew me to the world of cruising was that I I was definitely going through sort of like an early gender crisis um I was part of a queer scene I was lucky enough to be part of a queer scene where like gender was very performative and it was in a very safe space to be performative in. And um, it was mostly like drag kings and stuff, but I never felt like I never felt seen 
I have to say. And part of it was that every drag king that I saw at that time, although certainly times have changed, you know, they were all like Justin Timberlakes or, you know, like skinny um, dykes who were like basically appropriating like, um, like teen heartthrob culture. It was like very white, very kind of homonormative actually. And, um, I had a different desire that I was trying to understand about myself, not just through being a more like androgynous person at that time, but um, I also always felt much more kind of like seen or not seen, but sort of connected to like the, um, and in many ways, very superficial um elements of like gay male culture that I understood, which at that point was like, you know, fucking whoever you wanted, whenever you wanted and, you know, loving however you wanted to love. And, um, I never felt that that was presented to me on a kind of like pop cultural level in the same way for like a queer female. And so, but it was how I felt somehow. Um, and certainly there is like way more complicated layers to like to all of this than I had, you know, at like 20 was initially feeling. But I wanted to explore those fantasies and I wanted to explore those potentialities. And I um, in, in art school made a really close friend who was a cis gay man. And he I made this video, actually. And after this video, he he was in my class in my video class. He said to me well, why don't you just come cruising with me? And like, I can be your beard and you don't have to worry about getting kicked out or feeling like, you know, in danger of some situation. He was like, if anything happens, I'll be there. Um, and so we started doing that together. We started going cruising and it was like, you know, most of the times I would get kicked out of cruising spaces because, um, somehow I was like, quote unquote, figured out. And what were some of the reactions that you would get once you were, as you say, discovered? All kinds of things. Once I, I really like, I think it was like one of the only times I ever like fully ran down the street. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also, you know, became more brave and started going on my own. And actually one of the most successful cruising experiences I ever had in my early twenties when I, when I started out was at a, um, was in the dark room of a bear bar. And, um, you know, most of the time I didn't really even engage like sexually or explicitly with other men. Like, you know, I'd sort of be more of a voyeur. I would like, you know, masturbate or something, but I was approached by this guy and I just sort of felt like going, you know, like seeing what would happen. And when he sort of like, you know, quote unquote, discovered that I didn't have like a flesh cock, so to speak, he it wasn't an issue. And I realized just through our encounter that it was actually like the body relationality between us was so much stronger because he saw an image of himself in my size. Because, you know, bear culture is a lot about this, like, abundance and, like, largeness and, like, the celebration of large male bodies. And that was a real revelation for me. It was really amazing. Mm, really positive experience. Yeah, but also more just, like, um, 
just further sort of deepened my research into, again, kind of like how the potentiality of desire embodies, I would say, even, and, and to feel so recognized and seen in a way I didn't expect or in a way that I was, you know, as like a woman raised by, you know, very, very heterosexual people, you know, that like you only thrive if you're a certain kind of body, mm-hmm. if you're a certain kind of sexuality, if you're a certain kind of woman and all these things. You said that feeling seen is a thread throughout your work. When did you mm-hmm. first realize that you felt that your body, yourself, your true self wasn't being seen? Oh God, I mean, that's a loaded question. I think, I think, um, as cliche as it sounds, I think it just starts from uh, growing up being like a fat kid, really, and and constantly being in this narrative that I had to that no matter what my my physical life was about, you know, I had this goal of or this goal was placed on me that I should always want to be in a state of changing, changing towards a better body somehow. And I would say that like this narrative has been the narrative. I can't even remember it not being a narrative, you know? Um, And, and I certainly think that's where it stems from is, um, is this kind of very upper middle class um, neoliberal perspective of my parents who um, just you know, automatically assumed there were that you couldn't successfully be any kind, any other kind of body other than what was prescribed by, you know, the, the like by the system they were living in. Um, and I get it on many levels, actually, even though I think it's like incredibly violent and awful. I do often wonder, like, if I had been brought up in a different narrative like your body can be whatever you want it to be. It can be successful in the way that you want it to be successful. You can be, you know, that like, I don't know. I wonder how that would have changed things maybe somehow. But then that was the narrative of the 1980s when it's we true. Yeah. grew up. I was brought up by a mother who was the first successful woman in her family. She fought like hell in a predominantly like male dominated profession. She didn't come from anything. And she, a lot of what got her to where she ended up was cause she was like also extremely, extremely like beautiful in this, you know, she was, she was regarded as like a great beauty by a very like heteronormative or I would even say just like normative male gaze. Mm-hmm. And she used that as her power. And then she expected that to be something that you totally I mean, as well. she was like, if you can't start from this place of being kind of like recognized as an attractive body in a in a you know, under like capitalism, so to speak, mm-hmm. you're never gonna make it as a woman in this society. And she was really, I think, genuinely disappointed that both of her kids turned out to be like, you know, in many ways, queered bodies in this world um, through like 
my sister's struggle with like disability and sickness and all these things. And then, you know, through me being like queer and all the ways that I am without ever actually articulating it to her, because I felt, well, what's the point of articulating anything to her? You know, I'm just going to live it. And that's obviously what you mm. have, have done. One of the um, things I was thinking about was that when you were younger uh, and you're entering into these cruising spaces. Yeah. That's a world where you have to, by necessity, hide yourself. Because mm-hmm. if you don't, well, at some point you're going to get found out and then you get chased out, you get asked to, asked to leave. Uh, whereas if, in more recent years, um, you've worked uh, more in the world of dance mm-hmm. where your body is, uh, com- you're exposed in yeah. the most, actually, for many people that would be, the most exposing thing that they could possibly do would be mm-hmm. a dancer on stage surrounded by a very uh, conformist, narrow, yeah. you know, a group of people with very uh, n- uh, narrow range of bodies in, totally. in, in dance. So uh, is that is this move to dance or being part of the dance world, is that a reflection of, of your confidence in yourself, in confidence in your body, in confidence in your politics? No, actually, I think it's the opposite. I think it's my it's my reaction to feeling like quite um, not not confident in myself, but actually you're absolutely right when you say that I made this decision in my work to I mean, I always have, though, I feel like even in the cruising work, I don't feel like I was hiding my body. I think I was actually showing a side of myself or exposing a side of myself I never had exposed before. So Mm -hmm. I was exposing my body in a way through my like desire and sexuality of that particular moment to also align myself with like a gay male or a culture that I understood as, as like gay and male or that attracted me to the gay male element of it because I felt like it was a part of my identification and I needed to understand what that was, um, which is how I use my body. And I think also I have this, you know, um, I definitely am an artist who, you know, I, I think of myself as objectifying my body before anybody else. Um, because I think at first it was absolutely a way to like deal with, um, to deal with the potential like feelings of like shock and rejection that could come along with, you know, showing, uh, uh, and using my body, showing my body and using my body on stage in the way that I do to also feeling like empowered by taking that space. Um, and, and really like, for me, it's just actually, again, it's not at all about like holding space for like, quote unquote, non-normative bodies. Like that's, I, I, I love that people can relate, like feel seen in that way when they see my work. Cause a lot of, a lot of people have told me that, but really I'm just seeing like, how can I be useful? How is this body useful in the genre of performance or in the genre of art? How can I create space, move space, show my process, you know, ask these questions, um, how does this flesh move? How does it um, make people feel when they see it move? Uh, which is, I think, all art can really do is like propose potential, you know? 
um, propose portals, uh, propose reflections of, of ourselves and each other. And um, it's funny, like a lot of activists say to me that they feel that artists, like when I was making this first piece that the work you're going to see on Sunday comes from, I did a lot of interviews with environmental activists, actually, as part of my research for that piece, but explicitly about their emotional process and the work that they're doing, not about the work that they're actually doing. So like for them, like how do they sustain their energy when they're just constantly trying to find ways to create sustainable energy in this world? How do they deal with their like emotional states when they know that, you know, all of them talked about how actually at the end of the day, the research and the work they're doing is like informative, but like really a lot of them felt like it's actually not doing anything. Yes. And so there must be a huge um, mental toll. Yeah. Emotional. Many of these environmentalists have been working or have been working in this field for like decades and have had the answers for decades and have been warning about the oncoming ecological crisis for years. Yeah. And the answer, like what needs to be done has been known. But for them, I guess they're just watching things get later and later and later before there's some sort of, before the right interventions happen. Well, and they want to, they're yeah. meant to like maintain their enthusiasm, their commitment to their usefulness, actually, right. you know, like really their usefulness and the, the overwhelming sense of just like emotional mm-hmm. and like spiritual burnout by the environmental workers. And I was talking to all kinds of people, people who were like sitting in offices at like recycling plants, people who were like shutting down coal mines, people who were like, you know, um, civil disobedience trainers and like, um, in like environmental protests, you know, shutting down pipelines, um, to like simply like instilling like recycling programs at like their kids' schools. Like I really wanted to like, interview a range of people who were working in um, environmental politics and climate change when I was making that piece, because I wanted to understand what the physical and emotional experience of like burning out on your own politics was like, like burning out on Mm -hmm. something that you, that like you've had this desire to like give yourself to for so long. I mean, I think that's true with activism in general, you know, like at a certain point activists, they have burnouts. Um, and I, and I wanted to really think about that through the physicality of the work. Like, um, I thought a lot about just burning myself out in that piece. Like it's really physical, like super physical. And I think for a lot of people to see, you know, a body that doesn't equal what we know as, as like a fit body in a, in a very like, you know, neoliberal blah, blah, blah way. Um, just fucking going for it on stage was like really shocking. When did you start working in the world of dance? 
Um, so about, I would say five or six years ago, I was living in Berlin. I was just on the verge of kind of supporting myself as a full-time artist. And one of the ways in which I do that is, and, and it's also not just about supporting myself, but it's also very important for me to work with and for other artists in their own processes. Um, like I, I really learn a lot about like being in service to somebody else's work, especially when it's work I would never make myself. Um, and I have a real desire for that. It's, it's important for me. Um, I do it. I do it at least once a year and it's anyway. So, uh, I was invited to be part of a group dance piece and I was, um, the only person that didn't explicitly come from the background of dance or had like that kind of explicit training in me. And it was, um, and I was really excited about that. Actually, I was like super up for it. Mm, I felt it. really like honored to be invited into it, that the choreographers of the piece like saw something in me as an artist and as a practitioner and as a performer. And, and I knew it was going to be hard because I knew their work and really, really admired it. And it's super rigorous and super physical. And I mean, without getting obviously too deeply personal into it, I, I struggled really hard with it. Um, and that was a very like painful process for me to go through and realize, um, particularly because I was often working with people who I like massively, who I really, really respect and love as dance practitioners um, and who I really felt when I was invited into those contexts understood that I was not ever going to have the history and training that they had. I mean, I just don't, it doesn't matter what ability size or blah, blah, blah you are like dance training is something that people devote their lives to. So, um, I ended up struggling really, really a lot in that piece. And I had an injury in the end, um, a knee injury, which, no doctor would like uh, treat or look at properly. They would not even read my MRI results. They would just hand me the name of like a surgeon because they looked at me and they assumed being in a larger body, like, of course, I'm going to have like bad knees. So where, by the way, like almost every dancer I know has had a knee injury, literally every single one. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until I went to like an alternative pr a practitioner who did a lot of different body-based work who also had been work, who was a dancer at one point, a performer, and also worked in this field for, you know, 30 years. Um, I walked into her office and she was like, well, you know, I see a lot of dancers who come in here and think, okay, like heal me, heal me. And, and I'm looking at you and I don't think you need healing. I think you just, she was like, I think you need to decide She's like, yeah, you have an injury. She read my MRI results and she's like, you have a torn ligament and, you know, you need physical therapy and all this stuff. And she was like, but the real question is, do you want to be in this piece or not? Because this is an emotional injury as much as it is a physical injury. And it's up to you to decide how you want to deal with this. And that really struck me. And it made me think a lot about actually, because my own personal work is so much about emotionality and again, like urgency and desire. And I feel very in control of my body, or even when I feel quote unquote out of control of my body, it's like, I'm pushing myself in these ways in places I want to be. Your choice. Yes. And that really, it was like a big revelation for me. 
to have that conversation with her. And um, do you think that because you had to keep the show on the road, keep going to rehearsals, keep doing the performances, mm. that you hadn't given yourself a chance to realize that it was actually making you unhappy? No, I knew. But for many different reasons, I was, you know, I'm not someone who gives up ever in a process. And I'm, I'm like, I mean, as you know, as a filmmaker, as a journalist, like you enter really tough situations that you have to just like get through mm-hmm. sometimes. And, and I also felt responsibility to the other people that I was working with. Like, I didn't want to leave this collective, this collectivity that had been building over so many months, you know? What was it about the performance about that was, that was getting you down? Um, feeling invisible definitely was one of them. Feeling like I wasn't, I felt as though, and I still long for this experience. And maybe it's like, I have a totally unrealistic um, desire and kind of like projection of what this could be. But I really, really want to genuinely be like approached by a dancer, a choreographer who's like, I want to work with your body. I want to understand and learn and embrace and desire your body through like, you know, my choreographic practice. I would love that. It's like my constant desire to want to be topped my whole life. Like, <laughs> honestly, like, I just like bet, like I beg my lovers to top me. And it's like, there's one who like, really like she almost can get it and at a certain point she's like I just can't and I'm like please so this is why you keep putting yourself in the position <laughs> I don't know I and then hoping that one person one of them will be the right choreographer or the right person to well, talk maybe you. none of them will well maybe but you'll die it. trying <laughs> right I mean maybe that's it right I'm just on this like journey of that want that's like one of the like whole metaphorical and literal holes that will never be filled in me and maybe I don't want it filled in me you know mm-hmm. um but I want to I want to keep even when it's like even in that experience where I really just felt like so completely destroyed and not just that like I ended up performing with this injury which in the end I felt highlighted my inability to perform with a bunch of professional dancers even more that I became this body of representation. Um, and that was just so like deeply, um, painful actually, Mm. to be honest, really. Well, it sounds like it was the antithesis of what you had set out to. Totally. But I wasn't going to like, let it stop me either. That's a thing. You know, I was still like rolling around on the floor with like three people on top of me and I did it. I did it to the best that I could, but it was clear that, and I knew that from the response of people who saw it, Mm. who felt like I became this sensationalized representational body amongst like all of these dancers. You got eaten up by it. Completely. Totally. And is that then what galvanized you to start making your more work? Yeah. Derived from, as you say, not not dance, but more work that is involves movement, but is on your terms. Yeah, I mean, because what I did get out of all of those experiences and what I learned from all of those people that I worked with, those choreographers in particular, was like how to really live 
a performance, which is something that I never, I don't think I truly understood before I did that show. Um, and how to bring that into my own work. So did you feel like you had been invited into that world as an artist, but then you became more something that was there simply as a as a as a different body, something yes. as representation rather than I do. And I don't think that was always the I I have to say I don't think that was the intention of these practitioners when they invited me into their processes that I don't think they were like, oh, we wanna like be, you know, um uh, radical suddenly. I, I think that, that it's a lot of things that kind of, and that kind of, unfortunately I ended up in this space of like representation, a representational body because of like the lack of actually true self-reflection in what like, for example, the genre and the economy and the expectation of contemporary dance does to people who have been training in it their whole lives. You know, like, um, even if they come out of it with the best intentions, the best politics, this inclusivity that, like, everybody is a body, like, no, that's just actually neoliberal bullshit. Like, everybody is not regarded as a body at all. Whenever I lay on top of someone, I think about how amazing it must feel to feel a body, a body of weight, of unpredictable size, a body of a lot. I whisper to the shimmer, my belly is an exquisite, luxurious threat. This belly is a third genital. My belly is your most gaping hole. I was invited to like um, an artist lab at like a dance organization in Germany under the title of the lab was Real Bodies. And I walked in and it was like, you know, two choreographers who were wheelchair users, um, a couple of like larger bodies, um, you know, it was so fucked up. And this like, is what's Here's happening. our list of people that we need to have in these. Here are other- the outsiders. And we got this money and we need to hold space. And this is what kept starting to happen to me, actually, mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. And I was like meeting actually absolutely incredible practitioners who were all fucking pissed. Because they were like, this is bullshit. You know, I, I, I might be... I might be, you know, differently abled, but like, I am a choreographer. I am a dancer. And like, here I am being like curated under a real body context or like, it's so fucked up. It's so fucked up. But this is the, this is the economy of an art world too, you know? They're like dying to tick those boxes in order to get the funding. And is that a stop now? No, it's never going to stop. I mean, I can't tell you, actually, in the last few years, I've turned down a lot of jobs because of that. Um, And I feel happy that I'm in a position where I can do that because I'm not so sure that I would have before. And I think then it would have ended up being a really painful experience. But like, just as a quick example, last year I was invited by the Deutsches Opera to like be in a production and it was probably, it was like super well paid, I'm sure. It was like a really great opportunity on paper. And I 
thought, well, who's this director and how does he know me and why does he want me? And these are all the questions I ask when somebody's like, I want you to come work with me or be in my piece. And I'm like, awesome. Like, what drew you to me? Like, what? why do you want me for this role? And this guy just like could not answer. And I said to him, well, what is it that you want me to do? And he was like, well, you're going to represent like gluttony. You're going to represent like abundance and gluttony and like perversity and like, you know, that as well, all of these (laughs) things that like humanity just wants to like, you know, like wants, but also is ashamed of and all this stuff. And he's like, isn't that fantastic? And I was like, yeah, I get what you're saying. I'm like a freak, freakish body to you. And that's why you want me is for the visibility of like this fat body with lots of tattoos that will like, you know, take her clothes off on stage. And he was like, no. And I said to him, well, what have you seen me? What of my work have you seen? And of course, he'd seen nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that keeps coming through is that there is this problem that the art world seems to say, come be yourself, be your body. Totally. Uh, but if we and can't a... sell it, bye-bye. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I've had meetings with curators of like really big institutions. And I'm like, oh, I never even thought I would get this meeting in my life who are like, you really make me feel something. But I just don't know what to do with you. I don't know how to package you. I don't know how to curate you. I don't know how to sell you. I'm going to put you on at four o'clock in the morning in this like very beautiful program of artists and thinkers and blah, 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 for example. But I'm going to put you on at four o'clock in the morning when like a handful of people will see you, you know? And, and I'm like, but this is my livelihood. And then you think about all of the people who are not like, you know, in my position, which is like white woman, you know, um, who in many ways, I think, I think a lot of people are attracted to me because I'm like a less in in a lot of ways, I'm like a less dangerous body than like, you know, Mm -hmm. a POC body of, you know, bodies of color who are also queer, who are also unreadable. Like I'm unreadable, but I'm unreadable to many people on a very comfortable level. Um, And I think those are really important conversations to have, which is also why I think that the art world should be run by artists. Thanks, Liz. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I like to end. I like ending on that statement. Yeah, I like. I like to uh, end on that statement. And end on that statement too. Thanks for joining us on Consuming Culture, and thanks also to my guest Liz Rosenfeld. The series was conceived and produced by me, Kat McShane. Editing was by Dan Bolger. Make sure to visit us on Instagram, where you can see artwork especially commissioned for the series. If you don't want to miss future shows, then please do subscribe. And if you like what you hear, we'd appreciate a rating. See you next time. Baby